Hi, everyone. Welcome to this episode of Life After Love Gone Wrong. Um, Sandra Fava, partner at Fox Rothschild in their family law department. I am a resident of the Morristown, New Jersey office, but I practice throughout the state of New Jersey. Today, I have with me a very special guest, Megan Sartor of Sachs. She is a forensic accountant whom I've had the pleasure of knowing for quite a long time. I've invited Megan on today to talk a bit about her experience in a joint retention as a forensic accountant. But before we delve into that, Megan, I'd like you to just take an opportunity to introduce yourself today. Thank you, Sandra. Thank you so much for having me. So I'm Megan Sarter. I am a partner at SACS. We are a full service accounting firm headquartered in Parsippany, New Jersey, and we have offices in New York and in Edison. I've been with the firm a little over 14 years now, and I am the partner in charge of our forensic valuation litigation group. And a lot of my practice is focused in the matrimonial field. That's great. So I know you are often hired to do uh, an individual evaluation, but today I wanted to talk specifically about your experiences as a joint expert. And just can you start by giving everybody just a little bit of a background about the difference between a forensic accountant versus their regular accountant? Sure. So regular accountants are typically going to do taxes, accounting, bookkeeping, those sorts of things. And while most of us as forensic accountants do that as well or have a good background and foundation in that, from the forensic accounting standpoint, we typically do other skills such as business valuation. We can uh, you know, help calculate income for alimony purposes. We do tracing analyses. So we do other types of accounting work in the field of matrimonial or shareholder disputes or whatever legal avenue we're working in from a forensic standpoint. And do you need to have some sort of special training or designation in order to be considered a forensic accountant versus a standard accountant, if that's the word? <laughs> so there are credentials, right? So there are accountants that do some type of forensic work, but maybe not in a official capacity. When you do business valuation, there's certifications that you can get from the AIC, which is the American Institute of Certified Public Accountants, or there's another body or ASA, and these are all valuation credentials. So this just means that you have the expertise in that area. You you know did the education and the testing to get that certification. There's also forensic credentials as well. There's um, fraud credentials. So there's a whole slew of letters after people's names that yeah can set you apart from a typical accountant, which could be a CPA or um, somebody that's a tax professional as well. Okay, and why? couldn't a client or an individual use their regular accountant to do some of the things that you mentioned forensic accounting covers, like a business valuation or to determine someone's income? I work at a full service accounting firm, right? And so whenever our clients get divorced, I don't do the work for our clients because we just consider it we're not independent. They're our client from in a different capacity. So whenever we're in these matrimonial fields, we want to be independent. We want to be non-biased, right? Like we want to yeah. make sure that, you know, we're not 
in any way having a conflict of interest in the matter in which we're working on because it is a litigation matter. It's not a typical accounting or tax matter. So while your accountant can review maybe what the forensic accountant does or help the forensic accountant in terms of understanding, you know, how the books and records are compiled and things of that nature. I think from the standpoint of skill set and expertise, number one, but also keeping that independent, no conflict of interest is really important in these matters. That makes sense. I see. And as part of your practice, you also testify in court, correct? Correct. And participate in mediations. I know you've done a few with me. Yes. And um, have been deposed. Yes. So all of that would be re with regard to the work that you've done on behalf of a client, or if you've been jointly retained on behalf of the parties to, you know, help the lawyers come up with a legal solution to whatever the issue is, whether it is determining income for support purposes or placing a value on somebody's business, all of those things, right? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And we can be hired to, like you said, the, all those different things, right? We could be hired to do some of them. We could be hired to do all of them, right? So there's cases where we get brought in to do all of those things, or we get brought in to just do one limited thing at a time. So it really all depends on the needs and the circumstances in which the case needs us. Great. And do you find that it's usually the attorney or the individuals that will find you and hire you for their matters in a divorce obvious situation? More often than not, it's the attorneys that call us on behalf of their clients to do the work for them. There are circumstances where we've done a case for someone that like, their cousin or their friend, and they say, we want to hire you. And then they may ask us for recommendations on an attorney. But more often than not, it's the attorneys coming to us and bringing the case to us. And I know also there are occasions where you are appointed by a judge, court appointed as an expert. Is that also true? That is true, yes. And so let's talk a bit about the joint retention, right? Where you are working for both parties, oftentimes in a litigation, if the issues are not really hotly contested, that's a very cost-effective route to go by. Um, attorneys may recommend that or may consider that to be you know, a good effort. It doesn't prevent anybody if after the joint expert issues their recommendations or findings if they disagree for whatever reason you're still able to go out and retain another expert so you're not barred from having an individual expert except in very limited circumstances but it's definitely if you're in a situation where you have familiarity with your finances your resources are limited and you just feel like that might be a better option for you than a joint retention is certainly something to consider. So, Megan, can you tell us the situations where you've been retained jointly? You know, maybe some pros and cons of having a joint um, a forensic accountant? Yeah, absolutely. So, there are situations where, and you mentioned this before, court appointed expertise versus maybe an attorney calling and say, can you be a joint in this case? Right. And so I see them as two different things, right? Because one instance, it's the judge is appointing you. They didn't choose you, right? The attorneys didn't choose you. The clients didn't choose you. The clients may not be wanting a joint 
expert, but the court is requiring it to start. So that is a different feel and a different process than when an attorney calls or both attorneys on an email or a phone call say, hey, we have these two clients, we wanna retain you as a joint. So the retaining as a joint from attorneys, the process you know, is a little bit more specific in terms of now we're working for two attorneys and two clients. And so in that, everybody has to agree into the scope of work, right? So if I'm working for a husband and a wife, they both have to agree on the scope of work that I'm gonna do. Am I doing a business valuation, a cash flow, a tracing? Um, sometimes there's um, no trust, right? So even though people are going with a joint because maybe they feel it may be more cost effective or it may be a less painful process, less conflict, there may still be a trust factor issue. And so that's sometimes where we get into a hiccup of the scope of work, right? Because one spouse may want more of a scope of work than the other. So that's one thing with a joint uh, that there is more transparency in terms of what we are doing, but it may be conflict in terms of them agreeing on what's happening. Sometimes there's a division of power, right? There's an, a power imbalance, even just in terms of a financial power imbalance in terms of education and um, access. So there are times where we may have to spend more time with one spouse than the other, more from an education capacity than anything else, because they don't truly understand what we're doing or how we're doing it, whereas the other spouse may know. Maybe they're a business owner and they understand. So that's one area that we have to focus on and everyone has to be in agreement on. Okay. Another area is communications, right? So I always say, I try to lay out everything in advance, right? This is what we're going to work on. This is how we're going to work on it. But a big thing is communication, right? If I'm just working mm -hmm. for your client, Sandra, you may say to me, call him anytime, call him or her anytime, talk with them. I may ask things as their expert to them and may know things that the other expert won't ask, right? So maybe there's a difference in the information between two experts, whereas as a joint, I have to say, can I communicate with your client? With Do you want to be on the call? Does the other client want to be on the call? Does both counsel want to be on the call? So it's really a process of how are we going to communicate? Does everyone have to be on the call? Is everyone on commun uh, email communications? Like, how do we want this to work? Because I am a joint neutral, right? So I can't have ex parte communications with one side or the other without their agreement. And this is so important. I'm, I'm glad that you raised it because I've told Megan this before. I have inherited, I would call them, situations where there has been a joint expert or either retained or appointed, but my client has been the non business owner spouse specifically, and the joint expert is not including me or my client, nor giving us the option to be involved on anything and then sending out bills from the billing statement that they've been communicating with both the other attorney and the other party, the business owner directly uh, and significantly. And there's information that just hasn't been shared and emails as well. And I find that to be, in my personal opinion, just very unethical and just unprofessional. And, and, and if you have a situation where there is a lapse in trust, which often is the case in divorces, not always, but often, it really doesn't make any of that any better or doesn't make it any easier 
for the parties themselves and for me as the attorney who's trying to just be on the same page as everybody else. So I think it's really important and I would say to you know anybody who's listening that if you're going to do a joint expert of any type that you do at least ask what Megan has just told us about. How will you be communicating? Know what level of involvement you want. Speak about that with your attorney, but also just know to ask that because this is probably a new process for many of you. So like they say, you don't know what you don't know. Well, now you know what you need to ask. Okay, go on. Sorry. I just wanted to jump in there and add that. No, it's so important and you just got to give everybody the ability to be involved and it's their choice to be involved or not, right? I've had joint cases where one spouse has said, I don't need to be on these calls. My attorney can be, or the opposite of even the attorney's like, I don't need to be on this call for this situation, right? But everyone has the option and we're all in agreement and understanding as to how it's going to happen. So that's a little bit different obviously when you're hired and retained on one side versus together mm-hmm. so the the process itself i think is a little more streamlined because you have one expert requesting documentation instead of two and maybe requesting different information and just from all the standpoint right if you have two experts on the side and I'm interviewing the other client that experts going to be involved and vice versa and it's just more meetings and and things of that nature. This process is a little more streamlined because it's one expert asking for documentation, doing interviews, and just less cooks in the kitchen, if you will, but the process can be more streamlined in that way. What I tell clients too is what many people don't think about or realize or appreciate is in the beginning of a divorce or separation, there's a lot of what I call homework that has to be done. You have to give your lawyers and your experts information so that they can help you. So you have to go through your records and find things and ask questions and go to the bank and order statements and things like that. So to Megan's point, if you have one jointly retained expert, then you're doing that, you know, in in one funnel as opposed to trying to manage two of those funnels for information. So just keep that in mind. Right. One of the things that I make sure we do is because inevitably in these cases, there's usually one party that's providing most of the information than the other just because of access to the information, whether it's the business owner or what have you. So we set up, you know, a share file that both attorneys, both clients have access to when documents are uploaded, everyone gets alerted when documents are down. So it's one central location. It's not that one party isn't getting the information that the other party is providing or vice versa. They may not look at it, right? But they have it. So Mm -hmm. we try to make that part of the process as well, is that any documentation that's provided to the expert, both sides are going to get. That's great. Let's think what else. I'm cost effective. So more often than not, it's more cost effective to have a joint than to have two different experts because then you may end up having a joint at the end because sometimes in cases when each party has an expert and let's just say they're potentially far apart the court or the attorneys may agree to have a third so you may go from having one to three so that's always a risk with each party having their own expert but also as sandra said before 
if you have a joint, that doesn't mean that you can't then take that information that the joint puts together and say, I want another accountant to look at it and just maybe do a spot check. Give yes. me comfort level that what this joint expert did is fair and reasonable and within the parameters that another expert may find um, acceptable or reasonable. So it usually is more cost effective to hire a joint than to have two separate experts in a matter. Right. And that's a decision that clients need to make with their attorneys, figure out not every situation is the same. So maybe a friend had a joint um, and that was good for their situation, but maybe it's not the best strategical move or otherwise for your particular matter. So just make sure that you have a conversation about that. And if an attorney recommends it, you can ask, of course, why and pros and cons and kind of all of that. So that's you know also the point of doing these episodes is to give people an understanding of what their options are. Because again, for many, this is a new new waters, new territory that they're going into and they're they rely heavily on their selected, you know, professionals to help them through it. So that's uh, important to just keep in mind. Agreed. And you said it wonderfully that every case is different. So yes. while your friend down the street may have had a joint or your friend down the street may have gotten this award, every single case is different, has its own nuances, and some may warrant a joint and some may not. So on that topic, talking about some of the reasons why you wouldn't want to have a joint, right? Is that because we are a joint and we have to be transparent and we're working for both parties, the clients or the attorneys may feel they have limited control, right? Because mm -hmm. you agreed on certain scopes of work and maybe as the case progresses, you may want to go down an avenue as the attorney or the client um, may want to go down an avenue based on the findings that the joint can't go down because the other parties don't agree. Right? right. So you have limited control after, you know, the process is in place to make changes if the other party doesn't agree. So now you're in that situation. There could be concerns about confidentiality, right? Because as a joint, you're going to get information from one side and you're going to get information from the other. And it's not a privileged retention, right? So typically when I'm hired by, let's say you, Sandra, mm -hmm. you would hire me and the client would be an extension of you. So right. we would have more um, confidentiality and privilege in our communications and our discussions than you will have in a joint capacity because there is no privilege. It's a joint neutral person being hired by the two clients. So that is something too that people have concern with as well is that there's not that confidentiality piece of it. Yeah, I understand that. It's more of a, too, in addition, from a financial standpoint, right? It's We're never advocates even when we're in a hired retained position, right? If I'm hired by the husband or hired by the wife, I am not their advocate, right? You are. I'm an advocate for my position or my findings, but I'm not an advocate for the client or the client's position, right? When I am hired by the husband or wife, I can go to you, Sandra, and say, okay, this is what I'm seeing from what I did. I think we should go down this avenue, or I think we should pursue this path to get the result that the client is seeking. You know, I can give more, be more part of the process and more part of the overall strategy. Can't really do that. You can't do that as a joint. You can't be advocating in any way because you're a joint, right? You can't do right. that. So you can't help one side's strategy or agenda versus the other. So you're limited. 
in that way. And I think just to clarify what you said before is like the forensic accountant, they're not lawyers, so they don't advocate for legal positions. A position that you take with regard to support, for example, that's founded in the law. That's why you have an attorney. What Megan can do is say, this is the math. These are the accounting principles that I applied. This is what I saw based on those things. And this is how I got to my numbers. She can advocate to support her findings, her you know report or whatever she's doing on behalf of a client. Um, but it's really, you know, from a legal position, she can't get up and say in a mediation or under oath in a courtroom, Mrs. should get alimony in this amount of money because of why. That's crossing the line from what her expertise is, frankly. So I just wanted to clarify in uh, a bit more about what you said. Yes, absolutely. We can advocate for our, posi our position and our findings, right? Like what we think in terms of the value of the business or the amount of income. And like you said, a good example, I think, is when we do a business valuation, I can advocate that I think the value of this business is X, but I can't then say, I think right. other spouse should get Y of this value, right. right? That's the legal standpoint. There's a complete difference. I am not an attorney. I don't pretend to be an attorney, but it's just the point to that advocacy is a little bit less in joint retention than it otherwise could be in terms of talking with you, your strategy, your agenda, and saying, okay, right. from a financial standpoint, I think we should do X, Y, and Z to help get you to your strategy. Yes. We can't really do that in a joint capacity because both clients are gonna have their own strategy and their own agenda based on their conversations with attorneys. So as a joint, we really have to stay in our lane and present mm -hmm. the facts and present them in a way that is not at all in an advocacy way or going towards one party's agenda or strategy versus the other. And I think, again, for our audience today, when, if your attorney or someone recommends a forensic accountant to you or any expert, I think it makes sense. And I encourage people to ask questions why. I usually explain to a client, I'm gonna give you this, these three names and here's why. I've, you know, not only have I worked with them before, but I know per in specifically, they have a lot of experience valuing this type of business that we're looking at. Or I know that they have a lot of experience in front of this judge, for example, because I saw them the other day and they were telling me how they have two cases and they were on trial. Things like that matter. The oftentimes, attorneys have their go-to and they'll just use that person. And I think while they have a level of trust, they're not necessarily always thinking about is this the best fit for the situation they just know that they can count on this person in a deposition or does a nice report or all of those other things but i think that there's more to it than just that and so you should think about that if somebody's being recommended to you the you know understanding a bit more the why behind that because you want to definitely get something that you're going to benefit you know your situation jointly or independently it, that advice applies across both of those scenarios. The other thing is when Me Megan mentioned that joint retention may be less expensive, I think that it's important for us to note that when you go down these paths of forensic accounting, whether it's an asset tracing or a business valuation or figuring out someone's cash flow, these are significant undertakings. And depending on how long you're married or what type of asset you're tracing back and how far back has to be you know, reviewed, there is boxes 
of paperwork, just because it's digital, I think people are losing their ability to appreciate that. When I first started, and probably when you first started, you'd, you'd get a CD-ROM or you'd, you'd be delivering banker boxes of documents to your expert. And I think that people just seeing that had a better understanding of how much work goes into it. Now, most of these things are done electronically, the document sharing, which is great. It's a cost savings and technology is helping for a lot of different ways, but it's still a significant undertaking. And so you have to be realistic about what the expenses are associated with this. The fact that somebody is taking time, and I know many accountants, like lawyers, Megan mentioned she's a partner, they have junior accountants or associates, you know, I don't know what the accounting version of an legal associate would be, but other people, administrative staff also can be used that are, that will go through certain things and do the behind the scenes work to help keep costs down for clients or a client. But at the end of the day, this is still a financial investment. And part of what you have to think about when you retain any expert is the cost benefit analysis. Are you fighting over $5,000? Probably not worth it. Megan could do it and she's great at it. I, I think she would agree with me to say, that's not really money well spent. So just be, don't let emotions drive your decision-making when you come across some of these issues. Yeah, I, I agree with that completely. I've had many a conversations where I hear the issue at hand and I say, it's going to cost us more to have this conversation than it's going to yield you in the end. And it's going to cost more to go through everything and do it than it's going to yield you, right? And I'm very open and honest about that in terms of, okay, this is what I see and this is what I think before we go down this rabbit hole. Divorce is a very difficult process. It's very emotional. And we are asking you to make business decisions in an emotional state. That's what we're asking you to do, which is very difficult. And I say this all the time. This is my job day in and day out. So I can become you know, a little desensitized to that fact sometimes. And I try to remind myself, but at the end of the day, the marital estate is what it is, and everyone has to decide how they want to spend that money. How do we want to spend that money, and what's going to be the most effective way to spend the money? Because at the end of the day, that's the money, right? And whether it goes to attorneys or accountants or the other side or what have you, that's the pot we're working with. So I find myself always trying to to say that exactly as you said, Sandra. What's the cost benefit analysis of doing this? Right. And does it make Absolutely. sense? Absolutely. And I. The same thing, advice for clients too. And one of the reasons I enjoy working with Megan and some of the, the other accounts that I've worked with is they are exactly that. They are professionals that will say early, I, Megan has told me, like, Sandra, this isn't worth pursuing. And then I, I relay that to a client or we relay that to the client. And then at, at that point, it's their decision as to what they want to do. But they can't say, I didn't know this was going to end up with nothing and I spent this money because you have to make educated decisions and I can't say it enough, trying to make business decisions in a very, um, what is generally a very emotional time um, can be difficult. So you just have to really keep that in mind when you're dealing with the financial aspect of your situation or your case. So we're just about done with our time for today, but I wanted everybody to know too that Megan often um, and her firm and her colleagues, they speak at CLEs. So they do a lot of education for lawyers across the state uh, and across the country with the American Academy of Matrimonial Lawyers. And Megan, if somebody is interested in learning more about you or reaching out to you, can you let us know how they can find you? 
Yes, absolutely. So you can go to www.saxllp.com and you will see my profile there. It's got my email, my phone number. I'm always open to having conversations, consultations. Really, my goal is to help everyone get through this process as painlessly as possible, even though that may not always be the case, but that's my goal. And I can vouch that is definitely true. All right. Well, you all know where to find me. This is the life after love gone wrong. And uh, you can email me as fava at foxrothschild.com. My bio and uh, other information about my practice are listed on the Fox Rothschild website. You can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, or my Facebook page. Thanks for tuning in today. Have a great day, everyone. Thank you. Bye. Bye.